Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Happy 2022, everyone. I'm thrilled to welcome this year with a new lineup of podcast episodes here at Boss Barista. It's my hope that the guests that we have slated will challenge your ideas and perceptions of coffee, of service work, and what it means to build equity. And I can't wait to share what we have planned for you. Kicking things off, today's guest is David Lalonde, co-founder of Rabbit Hole Roasters based just outside of Montreal, Quebec. A lot of businesses say things like, we do things differently, but David really means it. Together with his business partner, Sophie, he aims to bring coffees from emerging and re-emerging origins to the forefront and to talk very frankly about coffee's history of colonialism and exploitation. David started a roasting company because he had a lot of questions. Why do most roasters buy Brazilian coffee solely to put in espresso blends? Why are coffees from one country fetching higher prices than others, even though they might have similar taste profiles? Through Rabbit Hole, David attempts to chase down those answers, and in turn, has provided an authentic and sincere approach to buying coffee differently. Here's David. David, I was wondering if you could start by just introducing yourself. Absolutely. So my name is David Lalonde, um, and I'm the uh, co-founder and uh, roaster and various other uh, roles for Rabbit Hole uh, Roasters um, in Canada, uh, in a small city that's called Delson, right next to um, Montreal. How did you get into coffee? I got into coffee, I would say about seven years ago. Um, and I wish I had a better story to tell, um, but it's one that I've heard a million times before. So specialty coffee was not really present in Montreal. And then I left for a three-year trip. It was supposed to be one year, but stuff happened. Um, and when I came back, the scene was pretty much booming. And I had a, a coffee aficionado friend that brought me to this coffee bar. And I just had an espresso. And it, I, all I could taste was blueberries. Like nothing else, you know, like the classic, oh, what's in this cup of coffee, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was working in a restaurant at that time. So I was used to tasting recipes and wine and cocktails. So tasting was always like a huge part of my life. But this coffee thing was like so crazy to me that it was not flavored. And like three months after, I just dropped my very secure, high paying job in the restaurant world. And I decided to be a part-time minimum salaried in the cafe. And that's how I got that. That's how I got started in coffee. What made you want to start a roastery specifically? Um, I wanted to start a roastery because I've worked for other roasters before. And I also did a little bit of consulting and helping. Um, by the way, I hate that word consulting. But anyway, I, I, was I hate it too. Thank by... you for, for pointing <laughs> it out. This is, this is a word that I really hate. But anyway, so I... I was working for myself for a brief period of time and I was helping um, some roasteries buy their green coffees um, by either like tasting, helping them develop profiles. Even if I couldn't roast coffee at that time, I could um, I could taste really well. And uh, and yeah, but all my my ideas that were like beyond 
beyond tasting, beyond taste profile, or beyond coffee brewing, they were all met with some, oh yeah, it, it, it sounds interesting, we can do this later, or oh, this is really complicated for insert whatever random reason that that cafe, that cafe owners or uh, roastery owners will, will throw your way um, to make sure that they can keep you a bit longer without actually doing what you want to do. Right. Um, and I'm a terrible employee, by the way. Uh, I mean, I'm, so uh, am I. That, <laughs> so I, I just had to do things my way. Um, and this is where the idea of like um, doing rabbit hole emerged because I could see that like just for the record, I don't think that the companies I work for did anything bad in terms of buying the coffee and roasting the coffee and running their wholesale program. But it's just not the way that I wanted to do it. And I'll, I'm pretty stubborn when it comes to that. So I was briefly employed by those people. And then I was like, it's just time to go into the world and try to start this this this, this coffee company, this dream that I have of buying from emerging origins and like really forming relationships that that is going to make sense for the farmers and not just make sense on instagram for example right. <laughs> so uh this is really where um this is really where i wanted to go with with, with rabbit hole it's just like do things a little bit differently and mostly my ways yeah, I was wondering, you mentioned that one of the things that you wanted to do was highlight emerging coffee regions. Was that something that you were trying to push when you were working for these other coffee companies and it just like was met with not necessarily resistance because you mentioned it's not like they were doing anything wrong. It just wasn't the way that you wanted to do it. But like, what was that kind of, what was that moment for you where you realized like, this is important to me. This is something I want to pursue. Yeah, this is a good question because at first I didn't know what was bugging me of like any roaster that I would see. But after a couple of years in coffee, I, I think I just realized that the origins were pretty much all the same. And you, I, I think people wouldn't dare deviate from that. So you had to have a Brazilian coffee for darker coffees or for blend. You had to have um, coffee from Ethiopia. You had to have coffee from Colombia. Like these were like kind of the main origins. And then you would have to sneak a Kenyan or a coffee from Guatemala in there. And then I got, because I was a baby barista, you know, I, I didn't know much. But then I did my, my own research and I started to get interesting in like the world of coffee at large. And then once you realize that coffee is produced in like more than 30 countries, you're just like, why do we keep buying from the same three, four countries all the time? So it really, it really intrigued me. And I was like, is this because the coffee is not good? Is it? But it was none of those things, right? It was just, a, this is how we've been doing things for a while. And this is how we're going to keep doing things. But uh, I was sure that there was like a whole world out there of like different uh, farmer stories, different tasting notes, different everything. So that's why it, I, I really got intrigued once I realized that like you, you, you could really like seek those coffees out. So I started to just like taste everything that I could from any origin in the world. And it, it kind of just stuck with me when I was a barista and when I, and when I was working with other roasters. And this is something that I knew immediately that I wanted to incorporate in Rabbit Hole. But it we didn't start like that. So the, just starting a business in itself was pretty crazy. And so we had like Brazilian coffees for like blends in the beginning. And then we experimented with small quantities of emerging origin. But after only six months, Sophie and I, we just sat down and we were just like, yeah, we want it to be different, you know, but we're not that different after all. So we had like a big, big shift, maybe six months into the business where we 
literally stopped buying from most main origin to just really focus on them. Emerging is an interesting term. Yeah, I was about to ask you about that because I would say that, you know, as I look at some of the the origins that you buy from, um, it's not necessarily emerging, but I would say maybe ignored. Re-emerging sometime, you know. Yeah, (laughs) or something that specialty coffee has just decided to like not essentially pay attention to. Exactly. So I, I like to think... I like to think of like those those less known origin in different terms, right? So for example, we're still the only coffee roaster in Canada with coffees from Yunnan in China. So this for me is a is is really an emerging origin. They've been producing uh, commercial coffee only since the late 80s, um mm-hmm. like on any sort of large scale. They, like they had coffee trees way before that, but um but specialty coffee is like only within the past decade or something, or even like a bit newer than that. So this for me is the definition of emerging, right. like it's kind of new, right? And then we have some other origin that I would qualify as maybe re-emerging because we have coffee from Yemen on our menu, but Yemen is the first country in the world to have produced coffee. So to label them emerging, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's fair because they've been doing this for literally centuries. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to find Yemeni coffee like on, on most roasters menu, right? So either it's emerging, re-emerging, or, or sometimes just less known origins, you know? Um, and and yeah, I, I, I don't know how to label those things, but basically if it's a coffee that you've rarely seen, there's a good chance that like we'll be interested in, in in learning more about those coffees and maybe incorporating them on the menu. I feel like when I was uh, first getting into coffee, there was these this idea of of coffee origins that I just never knew how to ask questions about. So, you know, no, like you said, coffee grows in thirty different countries, and I maybe knew about ten of them, and I had no language to say why are we not buying coffee from these other regions and now more people are talking about it which is great so like i've had uh sarah nguyen from nguyen coffee supply and she buys exclusively from vietnam which is awesome they're the second highest producer of coffee in the world and when i even talk about sarah and the episode that she was on i had people on my instagram account being like no we don't care about robusta or no that's gross and i was really intrigued by that idea that we have such ingrained ideas about coffee quality from particular countries that we've never learned to challenge. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. First of all, I've had I've had a couple of coffees from Vietnam, including Robustas from um, from Nguyen Coffee Supply. Yeah, so I had one coffee from Sarah and a Robusta. It was delicious. Like I truly enjoyed it. I I didn't enjoy it more or less than any other coffee that I was having at that time. It was just a different experience. Some days you want to drink beer, some drink, some days you you want to drink wine, and that's perfectly fine, but you're not going to compare one with the other. Right. So it's important to just just do this distinction, right? And always go back to if you buy Robusta or if you buy Arabica or if you buy from Vietnam or from Colombia or from wherever, right? who is this going to benefit, right? And there's a lot of farmers that are farming Robusta. And with climate change, there's going to be even more Robusta being produced because Arabica trees are basically dying if we don't change anything with like the, the way the world works and how we buy coffee, right? So it, it, sometimes I feel the coffee industry is just like stuck in this thing. We've been doing this like, like that 
for a long time. So we have to keep doing it that way. But no, because let's not forget that coffee is a colonial product. So if you've been doing this a certain way since the days of colonization, then we, we for sure need to change the way we approach certain aspects of the coffee industry, like 100%. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's something that Rabbit Hole is really open about, that coffee is a colonial product and that you're attempting to really face that head on. Was that an intentional decision that you made when you first started Rabbit Hole or was it something that kind of developed over time as you learned more and more about where your coffee was coming from? Uh, it certainly was not in any business plan before we started rabbit hole uh, to just focus on the colonial aspect of coffee uh the, the first goal was to start this business uh not go broke mm -hmm. then le learn how to roast tasty coffees and learn more about the details of like coffee roasting and just learning how cropster work and the roast curves and the theory and tasting a lot of coffee so i'd say the first six months of rabbit hole were really about learning business learning buying coffee uh, and learning um, how to roast coffee and then assess roast defects, right? Uh, but after that, this is where we wanted to be different. And this is where we realized like, wait a minute, we paid $1.75 for like the first Brazilian lot that we bought, right? And I would say it was like a really decent coffee. Like it was definitely specialty, definitely had multiple tasting notes. It was a good coffee. And I was like, why is our Mexican coffee that's really similar to that one? What was the Mexican coffee 350? And then the Brazilian one was a dollar 75, literally half price for a coffee that's like almost the same profile, right? And this is what got us started into digging more into that. And the thing that we've learned since then, you know, like we're almost three years later now since we had this realization. So, uh, and this. Once we started to learn more about the colonial pasta coffee, there was basically no turning back. <laughs> and this is this is something that's becoming really important to Rabbit Hole as a whole, is to focus on highlighting those those issues that are directly linked to colonization uh, and slave labor, literally. So what was that like when you first started incorporating that sort of dialogue into the way that you talked about coffee? Because when I go to your website now, I mean, it's it's mentioned everywhere. Um, it's yeah. mentioned, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's 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 you know, you guys have a a blog that you you talk a lot about the different coffee origins that you're buying coffee from, and the way that colonization has affected the way that coffee is traded, especially Haiti. That's those are the articles I was reading recently, especially because I just bought one of your coffees from Haiti. Um, yes. I never had a coffee from Haiti before. I've been in coffee eleven years. Um, I've never heard anybody really talk about it until. Um, you folks, and I think the folks at uh, Davila Coffee really, really highlight that origin. Um, but I wonder, like, what what did it feel like when you first started presenting this information to people? Were they excited to learn more? Were they, like, not interested? Like, what was that like? They, but at, at first, it was... At first, it was mostly just for us. We really wanted to learn more, making sure that like we were not crazy before we would talk about this more kind of publicly. Mm -hmm. But it was clear that it was like all over coffee, um, any origin, basically. So we just decided to just start doing some, some research on that. Um, and it was just going... It was almost kind of a, a natural transition to being like, oh, they're the roasters who are focusing on like those crazy origin, those less known origin, right? 
So we kind of had this this feel, even if it was just because of taste profile and roast profiles, that we were kind of a little bit, like sometimes a little bit different than other roasters, just in in the origin that we would we would feature. So it it almost felt like a natural transition to start talking about more important stuff because I was like, we're already different, so might as well go all in here and like literally like it's hard sometimes to do a pun but like go down the rabbit hole i'm not <laughs> doing this on purpose but it's that's also why we chose that name by the way it's really hard to talk about coffee without saying rabbit hole at some point just for the expression um and um but yeah but the people like i wish we would have more engagement on those posts on on those articles but we've got to say that like we've attracted like-minded people mm-hmm. whether it be uh, coffee shop owners uh, or baristas or importers or um, home consumers that really, really identified, uh, not identified, but that they really engaged like all in as well with those posts and with this type of content. Because sometimes we have people that are completely ignoring us when we do things that's about colonialism or the fact that we should pay farmers more and they just disappear and when we start talking about brew method then they come back you know but for the other people like i i feel we we've reached that kind of niche uh niche maybe is not the right word but like the people that are engaged with us now like because we've been doing this for a long time they're really all in with us Mm -hmm. and they expect this from us but they like this from us and they want to really participate and most of them are cafe owners or home baristas and they now see their roles because of those articles and how they could impact coffee in their own small way just like we're doing in our own small ways with those articles right so it's really just about sharing information because we have access to that information but we also really invest money researching and we pay um we pay one of our our only employee actually roxanne who's got a um a degree in the Latin American and Caribbean study. So she was perfect to just like do this, this, this research on, on Haiti. But I'd say that overall the reception is like really, really good. And people, I don't think people have any bad intention, but just people don't know. So we, we've taken it upon us upon ourselves to just put this information out there, whether it's, it's fun and unknown or whether it's uncomfortable and less known, you know? So like we just want people to have access to as much information as possible because we think that this is how coffee will change in the long run. Yeah, that's a really good point. Number one, that making information accessible means that there's potential for people to change, that people can't make changes unless they know like what is actually happening around them. But something else that you mentioned too that I wrote down is that when you're really clear with your intentions, which it feels like you are with what you want to do with Rabbit Hole, the people who are like-minded are going to come find you and they're going to buy in. And I think that that's a really salient point to make because when I talk to some other cafe owners or coffee shops sometimes, it feels like they don't really know like what their intention is. Like, why am I here? What am I doing? Yeah. What is my mission? And it becomes like almost a race to the bottom. And I think that has a lot to do with this like single pursuit of quality. So like you were mentioning yeah. earlier that like everyone's buying the same coffees. Everybody's roasting them the same ways. Cafes look the same. And I think it's this insecurity about what is my intention and what do I want to do with this cafe space or this roastery or this brand that kind of almost makes it like a funnel towards this very singular very specific pursuit of quality. And it seems like you saw that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's really hard, like in life in general, if you don't know why you're doing something or like why you're in business or why you go to that, I don't know, like that grocery store, like in any aspect of your life, if you if you don't really know why you're doing something, I feel it's becoming almost impossible to do it and have fun or do it well, you know? Um, and this is a, an interesting question, like a, a, a different type of angle that I've that I've always been playing with in my own head in every time we're about to do something with rabbit hole, whether it's my idea, Sophie's idea, um, like it doesn't matter. Right. This is a very interesting question, especially in the coffee industry, because like you said, like I said, everything feels the same. Most, most times cafe or roasteries or whatever. But the question is why, why do I deserve to do this? in the coffee industry like why do we deserve to uh take space in this industry so this is this is a question that i've been asking myself mostly the last couple of months because sometimes people think that i don't like coffee from colombia for example mm-hmm. but because we don't have any except like a decaf but i i adore coffees from colombia i think they're delicious and if I would have to drink one coffee origin for the rest of my life and I cannot drink anything else. I would choose Colombia in a heartbeat, even if we don't have any on our menu right now. But why would I bring Colombian coffees when there are already everybody in my city having coffees from Colombia, right? So we always try to find this approach where we're going to take a different type of space because it's going to attract a different type of coffee consumer and then we can buy from different origin. And this is how you kind of like broaden your horizon, right? So I just I just thought I'd share this because it's it's a very interesting concept to me. Like whatever you do in life, maybe always ask yourself, why do you do this? And if it works out and you like it, why do you deserve to be doing what you're doing in like the context of your own industry? Um, and this is something that's been driving me for the past couple of months, actually. I like that question of why do you deserve to take up the space that you do? Because I think that that's a question, especially now with COVID and with people leaving cafe jobs or not wanting to work at cafes anymore and business owners kind of being like, what do I do? And it's like, well, I mean, the question is, why do you deserve to own a business? Like, why do you deserve to have employees who break their backs working for you while you're paying the minimum wage. I don't think people ask themselves that question a lot, especially when it comes to business ownership. Like, why do you deserve to be here? Exactly. And just like, we're very small business. So it's Sophie and I, and we own Rabbit Hole and we have one employee. But not one time do I think, why do uh, Roxanne deserve to work with rabbit hole it's the other way around i'm just like why do we deserve to have her on board with us in this crazy project you know so is she fulfilled so when i learned about her background about the studies that she did i'm just like i wanted to write this article about haiti and haitian coffee for like even before we had any on the menu obviously i'm gonna ask roxanne to do it like i'm not qualified to do all that research you know like this is what she studied literally Mm -hmm. um so it's just about about always whatever you do as a business owner is just like, why do I deserve to do this? Why do I deserve this employee? Why do it, it's not like, I think it's a different outlook and it just puts things in perspective. And I, in my opinion, this is how you build kind of like an ethical business because 
most of Roxanne's job is bagging coffee and roasting coffee with us and doing logistics, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not the most fulfilling job, right? So I think we pay her well for this, but then we also need to keep, not keep her, but like make sure that she's fulfilled in other aspects and that she can use her background and the things that she really, really, truly loves and try to incorporate this in rabbit hole. So it's, it becomes, when you ask a question like this, why do you deserve this? It, it, it makes everything more kind of like holistic in a sense. And everything makes more sense because it just does make more sense, you know? <laughs> no, I think I get what you're saying about it just making sense that we would engage the employees that we have, the people surrounding us, and ask them, what makes you happy? How can we help you get to the point that you want to get? Maybe you don't want to work here forever. That's totally fine. How can we help and support you to get to the next place? Because I think for a lot of business owners, the question is often in the reverse. It's like, what will you do for me? Like, how will you give me your labor in a way that is beneficial to me? And often the narrative is framed around employees being lazy or being not committed to work, especially that's happening now because of COVID. Um, But at the same time, it's like, there's a proven way to do this better. It's just about flipping the question around. Yeah, I agree with that like a hundred percent because if I look at myself before I had any business, you know, like there was never a doubt in my mind that I would not stay with those companies for like more than two, three or four years. Even if everything was great, you know, I just knew that I would need new challenges and I would want to do maybe my own thing or explore different aspects of the coffee business, right? But the best way to keep employees longer, it's really focusing on them and not just like literally extracting everything you can from them, making them miserable. And then you just repeat this cycle, right? Like if you just make sure that they're as happy as they can with whatever they want to do in the future, this is how maybe they're going to see, wow, this job is actually pretty dope. (laughs) Maybe I'm going to stay here for a year or two longer. And for a small company like us, if we were to lose 100% of our employees, which is one person, Of course, it's going to impact, like, it's going to impact rabbit hole, but it's, it's like our job as business owners to make sure that they're fulfilled, they, that like, they want to stay here as long as they can, but it's also our job to make sure that we're going to support whatever it is that they want to do, like deep down, you know, and if it's compatible with your business, then it's great. And in that, in the case of like, uh, Roxanne doing research uh, with her like, with like a degree and things like that. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it doesn't work that way, you know. Like if she wanted to be like a professional volleyball player, like I can't help her with that, but I'm gonna support her right. like any way I can, you know. <laughs> so uh, it's a stupid example, but like you, you know what I mean. No, I totally know what you mean. Um, it's funny. I'm going backwards a little bit, but it's funny that you mentioned the pun of rabbit hole because when I was googling beforehand before we hopped on this call i was like let me see if i can find some articles about rabbit hole i couldn't find very many but everybody mentions the phrase rabbit hole when they talk about coffee yeah which, absolutely which is which was really funny to me that you mentioned that um something else i want to talk about something i've been talking about a lot on this podcast and it's something that i still feel like we don't explore enough but it's the idea of risk when it comes to the coffee supply stream and how roasters are often the people that are asked to take the least amount of risk on. But it seems like with the way that you buy and sell coffee, you're assuming some of that risk by, by working with coffees that maybe nobody has ever seen before or being really upfront about like, 
the cost it actually takes to get these coffees here. So I was wondering if that's something that you think about, like how risk is spread out throughout the supply stream and like what you can do to assume some of that risk and take it away from farmers, take it away from baristas. Oh, a hundred percent. I think about this like all the time and this is mostly my main job at rabbit hole. So I'm, I'm the one buying all of the coffee just because of my background, because of, of, of my tasting abilities. And, um, and I think about this literally every day. I'm just, how can we make sure that the chain across the board is going to be more like ethical or the, the word that people will employ pretty loosely here, but like sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I think about this in pretty much every time I think about green coffee, I'm going to think about how can we make sure that there's going to be the least amount of risk, not just for us, but for the farmer, for literally everyone. So one of the easiest thing is just to commit to buying the coffee for multiple years mm-hmm. uh, with, with with farmers, you know, regardless of uh, not regardless of taste, because specialty coffee as needs to be into like a certain like quality range. But if a coffee, for example, is 85 point one year and it's 84 point the next year, some buyer will just always look for the better quality coffee and just drop relationship with farmer and they go see their neighbors now. But that's devastating for the farmer that you just ditched right now. Mm-hmm. But let's be honest, after roasting, if you do pre-ground coffee, coffee with milk, espresso machine that's poorly dialed in and the difference between an 83 point and an 87 point coffee for most people is going to be almost negligible you know maybe for like the black filter coffee drinker that know more about coffee but so it's always about mitigating the risk for the farmers at least that's that's what i i I focus on so doing contracts in advance uh, that's not just purely on taste and on scoring uh points for a coffee that's number one to mitigate the risk. Second of all, if you want to do anything that the farmer is not used to doing or is going to do something special for you, you need to pay for that coffee regardless of what happens. You need to assume that risk. So the stories that I've heard in the past of just roasters asking for some experiments and then it doesn't taste the way they want and then they just bail on a certain type of like coffee because it doesn't fit their profile anymore or they changed their mind because there was no contract or anything like that. And let's be honest, if there was a contract, what could like the farmers do really? Like if you buy coffee from Vietnam and you're a roaster in Canada, like it, it would be so. It, it's all about starting slowly and just like building those relationships so that you, you gain, like everybody gain a little bit of trust in the process. And then it's just about paying more for coffee, like literally. So we cannot be the ones making most of the profits. I don't care if it's the importer or the roaster or the cafe reselling bags. Uh, we make way too much money in in, uh, in consuming countries versus producing mm-hmm. countries. Like I'm not, this is not a breaking news, maybe for some, but like if you're in coffee a little bit, this is, it's, this is yeah. pretty common it, knowledge. Yeah, it's not breaking news, but I think to be able to say it so plainly is... Yeah, and it's literally probably 90% of the money doesn't stay in producing countries. Mm -hmm. So if that's not the definition of colonialism or extractivism or imperialism, like I don't know what is this this number right there that about 90% of the money from coffee 
doesn't stay or doesn't go back mm-hmm. to producing country is is just like crazy. You know the system is broken 100% if if this is the case, right? Right. Um because I guarantee you right now because it's produced by white people, if uh winemakers in France would keep 5% of the money and then I I'm reselling wine in Canada and I make 95% of that money, this does this wouldn't go well. You know what I mean? Because it's white people producing the, the wine in France mostly, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's all about th- this colonial past once again. And I keep coming back to this when you talk about risk and how you mitigate risk, right? Is because we just assume that coffee needs to be cheap because n- people don't really know where coffee comes from, you know? Just coffee is an exotic product. So for most people, if it's produced in Papua New Guinea, Ethiopia, or Colombia, it's just not produced at home. And it doesn't really matter like in their mind where it's produced as long as they have tasty and affordable coffee at home. So it's just about paying more for coffee, um, literally. And this is how we've tried to build our contracts uh, with our importer, exporter, or directly with the farmers. Um, and it's just about open discussion. What are people that are willing to pay here? What can I pay you? And I'm very honest about my margins and what can I afford for certain types of coffee. And to be honest, most coffees, I can afford to to pay way more than what they received in the past. There's just a couple of coffee where it's a bit more price sensitive for like cafes or for office buildings and stuff like that. But even then we pay a lot of money for it. So, so it's all come back to just like pay more for coffee and then if they have more money, then they're going to have less risk. Like, it's pretty much as simple as that. Yeah, it seems pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Um, you listed pretty pretty basic things that people can do. Number one, pay more for coffee. Number two, promise to buy that coffee year in and year out. Um, yep. Something I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, just because I wanted to use some of the things that you've talked about in this episode and kind of apply them specifically to a coffee origin, is I want to talk a little bit about Haiti. Because like I yep. mentioned earlier... I had never had a Haitian coffee until I ordered it from you. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Haiti as an example of some of the practices that you hope to embody and why it was important for you to add a Haitian coffee to your menu. Yeah, but first of all, like Haiti used to be the world's number one producer of coffee. This is something that I didn't know until a couple months ago. (laughs) Like I've been in coffee for a long time, but if you would have asked me, 250 years ago, who was the biggest coffee producer, I can guarantee you that Haiti was not in my top 10. Mm-hmm. Like, I just didn't know that at all. Um, so you can see from that that if they were at some point the, the biggest coffee producer, and now they're literally not known for producing coffee, and especially not specialty coffee, um, it's going to be... Um, like It just fitted the mission so well of let's put back some of those origin like on the coffee map and let's try to like build those those relationship about um like the fact that Haiti was such like a huge producer of coffee and it's very tasty coffee and because of of the way coffee was brought there like they still have like very very old trees and like pretty much untouched varietals you know that are often linked to just like pure Ethiopian heirlooms in a sense right so it's just fascinating from a taste perspective, um, from a, a, a colonial past perspective. And we just really wanted to start building this. It was really hard, to be honest, to find a coffee that was from Haiti and that I, I felt comfortable like selling on the menu because 
there's no infrastructure there that much for specialty coffee. It's mostly commodity coffee. And I've had I've had some of the some of the worst coffees that were labeled as specialty, but like I received the green coffee and I was like, I really, really want to be involved in there, but I still need to be able to sell that coffee, right? So that's that's just the only part that sucks about the job sometimes is that sometimes I would really love to be involved somewhere, but the quality is simply not there. And I would just like be stuck with all that stuck of green coffee. Yeah, but it seems but, like you're challenging yeah. the way that quality is understood, which I also I think is important because we were talking about this idea of like the single pursuit of quality and how like everything is kind of going towards sameness. But it seems like with rabbit hole, and obviously this happens slowly, like this doesn't happen overnight, that yeah. you're challenging the way that people want to purchase coffee. Like as a coffee person, as a person who's been in the industry for a while, I saw that there was a Haitian coffee and I immediately wanted to try it. And that yeah. like completely is irrelevant in terms of quality. Like I, I it was like I was a different market, you know what I mean? So it's interesting yeah. to hear people kind of talk about like different ways that people buy coffee because I don't think that we really honor that um so i don't know i just wanted to push on that a little bit but continue yeah. on with what you were saying with that yeah yeah no for sure that that's a good point and we really try to change how people taste and perceive certain coffees because like i said before once it's roasted once the coffee age when it's served in a cafe or in a kitchen or in a super automatic machine the difference between an 83 point and an 86 point coffee is so, most people won't see the right. difference, right? Especially with milk and sugar, right? So if taste is not the main driver, what should be the main driver? And it just it should just be building relationship mm -hmm. and making sure that the people producing this coffee have a not like an like an outrageous lifestyle. We're talking about livable wage here and like paying more than the cost of production. So there's something that you said earlier and you say like how we kind of approach those origin, but for us to buy a couple of bags of an emerging origin, we always sell out of that coffee super, super, super fast. So every time we bring a new origin, so in case of this, if this Haitian coffee, we've never sold so much of a new coffee of a new origin in the first month of releasing a coffee. So Haiti holds the record for the most amount of bags sold uh, for like a new origin that we released, right? Because people were curious. We also had all of those articles kind of educating about the like Haiti's history past, just not just in coffee, but like overall. Um, and all of those things were not linked to taste right. because I think, I think that like we've reached a point in the coffee industry where the narrative that rabbit hole has now, I think would not be fit to be a roastery in 2006 because Taste was like, it was so hard to find tasty coffees early in the, in, like in like 2004, five, six. It was not that easy to build relationship remotely. Social media was not really where it was at right now. And communication wasn't either. Um, like when I was traveling just for like backpacking, I remember a time in like 2006 where there was no Skype nowhere and people used to chat like you know and you had to go to an internet cafe so the world evolved really quick so if i would have to buy coffee in those days it would have been wildly different and it was important to focus on quality first like early in the in the year 2000 you know because we were coming from commodity coffee so now we had to show people that like look specialty coffee is really special because it really really tastes different but i think that nowadays in 2021 if the the roastery labels themselves as specialty roasters. 
you can assume a certain level of quality, right? And you don't have to say, oh, is this going to be garbage or is this going to be okay or is this going to be exceptional? I think it's always going to be tasty, right? Mm -hmm. And as long as it's tasty, and for me, tasty is just clean and sweet with no defects, basically. Mm -hmm. But after that, if it's tropical or it's more citrusy, in my opinion, this doesn't matter at all. Um, You can seek those coffees if you like them, but I'm just, as a coffee buyer... Uh, I think that it's my job to just buy this coffee for other reason than the taste, as long as it's tasty. And specialty coffee now produces tasty coffee way more easily than 20 years ago. So I just thought that this was worth mentioning, that like people need to stress about, oh, am I going to like this? Most of the coffees that we buy, I think they're all tasty. I'm not saying you're going to like them all, but I think they all qualify as good and decent specialty coffees. Right. And like you were saying, you sold out of that coffee faster than you sold out of any other coffee that you've sold, which is really interesting because I think I think it proves that point that people aren't necessarily just buying for quality. And I think what you were saying about, you know, in 2006, where we didn't have social media, we didn't have ways to connect and engage on these issues. The only entry point that we had was quality and taste is really, really key because in 2021, we have so many other tools. Exactly, you know, and it, and it, this is one of one of those instances where people in the coffee industry are going to get stuck on something. It's just like, oh, but specialty coffee was born because on an SCA scoring grid, every coffee that scored above eighty point was labeled as specialty, and this is how we can sell the coffee to people for more money because it is specialty coffee. But I think the definition of specialty coffee now, maybe I'm mistaken, like I, I don't know exactly, but in terms of taste, a coffee can be labeled as specialty coffee if it's above 80 point on a scoring grid, right? So I think we need to expand that definition, you know, <laughs> because it's so easy to find coffees above 80 points right now. Like it's just ridiculously easy. Anyone can start a roastery call one importer and they're going to have a bunch of coffee above 80 point. Like it's super easy. So if it becoming, if it, if this is becoming like the standard and it's really easy to find, we just need to expand that definition of specialty coffee and it cannot be only about taste. And I would argue that taste now for me specifically, because it's so easy to find those above 80 point coffees, we need to switch and put taste second because they're everywhere and just put relationship coffee or, whatever other word that you want to call this, as long as you think about the farmers first, about origin first, and you work with that, with the coffee that's tasty already. David, I could talk to you forever, but we're, yeah. we're kind of uh, towards the end of our time here. And I was wondering if there was anything that you wanted people to know about Rabbit Hole that maybe isn't obvious or something that you maybe don't get to talk about as much. Whew, that's like... I'm going to need a minute to think about that. We could just do a whole nother episode um, about that. The, the, yeah, probably in about like social media and coffee accessibility and, and, and all of that, right? But I think I've covered like in this, this in this last bit that I just said about expanding the definition of specialty coffee. I just think it's time to rethink how we how we buy coffee, how we develop relationship at, at origin, but also how we... Also, how we engage with, with the consumers and the home baristas, because sometimes it's just, the, the work sometimes is going to, people think it stops in the cafe with the baristas. And then once people pick up a bag of coffee, then the job is over. But those consumers, if they can, if they can get as engaged with coffee 
as they are with craft beer, craft cocktails, wine, or new restaurants, and any any other like fine and tasty products, right? Like people love to drink, people love to eat alcohol, coffee, whatever, you name it. And and it's just booming, right? But I feel that one aspect where the consumer is completely left out and there's like no background stories or like no, no like, this is, I try to gather my thought because I don't want to say there's no good information, but like maybe true information or like different types of information because like you, like you said, the, the Haitian coffee is like a a, super, a good example of a coffee that's tasty, but it's not a geisha. It's just clean and sweet with a couple of, of nice notes. Um, but people got so engaged with it because of the article that we did, because it's a less known origin. Uh, and you can clearly see that now consumers, coffee consumers, they want to know more. But we got to give them more if we want to keep them in, if we want to be able to include them in selling them coffee for more money because if we pay more for coffee we have to sell it for more as well it's pretty basic business but like so i just think that we would need to have more people doing those type of research or articles or sharing information that's going to be for true development at origin and not just for marketing purposes do i make any sense now no you made so much sense sometimes i just feel like my brain is going and (laughs) like so it always takes me about 30 minutes to really be focused on a subject, right? And now we've been talking for like 40, 45 minutes. And I feel like I'm just hitting my, you know, like just my my rhythm. So I, I just wish that there would be more information that would be for educating the consumer and not just for uh, like a roasters or a coffee company's marketing, right? Because this could be an whole other episode and it was talked about on uh on on your podcast probably before if i remember correctly but we don't i'm gonna end with this is that we have to start doing things for real change and not just for like marketing purposes and you have to do things like holistically so that it makes sense like not just in coffee but also like beyond coffee like livable wage uh like no matter how they're going to spend that money at origin right it's not we we have to step out of this um of this idea of like i'm going to use that information only if it benefits my roastery you have to think about i need to use that information if it makes sense in the coffee industry as a whole and if people are going to be able to in, engage with that kind of so uh it was pretty hectic talk but like i hope that people will get what i'm trying to say here i think they they'll get what you're trying to say i feel like i get it so <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on the show and being so passionate about the way that you buy coffee and the way that you roast coffee. And I just really appreciate your time. So thank you for joining me. No, thank you so much. And like, just like on a ending note here, honestly, I, I had some goals that I wanted to have when I when I started Rabbit Hole and really being interviewed on the Buzz Barista podcast was one of them <laughs> because, because, I, because y- you see... This is a different type of podcast to me, and it really fits about bringing something else to the coffee industry. Um, so I, I really appreciate like just having a moment to chat on the Buzz Barista podcast because I've been a huge fan for a long time. So I can I can check that off the list of things that I wanted to do. That's what I'm here for checking checking things off your bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> That was David Lalonde, co-founder of Rabbit Hole Roasters. You should definitely check out the Rabbit Hole website 
where you'll likely see a rotating selection of coffees not being offered by any other roasters in North America. And if you really want to learn more, check out their Instagram page at Rabbit Hole Roasters. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you in two weeks. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week.